Welcome to episode 168 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Brian Levin. This week, we hung out with Kuhnbach and Jorn van Dijk, and they are the co-founders of Framer. And before that, they were at Facebook, and before that, Sofa. <sighs> More Facebook people. Ugh. By way of Amsterdam and the Netherlands. Uh, super fun conversation. We talk about their work, what they're up to with design tools, starting a startup in Amsterdam, Silicon Valley culture design. Uh we get Dude, into all spoilers, sorts of calm topics. down. Spoiler alert. But before we get into that, a couple things. First, we want to let you know that if you need more podcasts for your ears, the Spec Network exists. The Spec Network is... It's us. It's us. It's what we do. Uh, it's nine podcasts for designers and developers helping you level up. Uh, we have blogs. Bryn's blog series called specifics it's which not has, a series if there's only one <laughs> which has one post in it uh, god i'm so many thousands of words into the next <laughs> set of posts but man it's hard little bites of cocoa for ios developers my blog design details hey how's that update going huh uh, which hasn't been updated in a while but we have lots of content uh so if you want more podcasts for your ears go to spec.fm lots and lots of shows for designers and developers with the goal of just helping you level up hope you check it out it's at spec.fm and of course, before we get into the episode, we want to thank our sponsor, Wayno, for making this episode possible. Wayno is just the best digital agency out there. They're killing it, making amazing products and websites for incredible brands with a really awesome team. Okay, so Wayno has been doing this really, really cool, uh, I don't know, like month-long rebrand sort of teaser project. Oh and they my just God. came They're- out with iPhone wallpapers. That are really, really beautiful. And They're in my Twitter feed all day, every day. It's getting a bit obnoxious, guys. Uh-huh. Uh, you can find those on their dribble. We'll, of course, put a link in the show notes. But they're just sharing amazing work from an amazing group of people on Twitter, Instagram, Dribble, and, of course, their website, wayno.co. And they're just sponsoring the show because they want to support us. They enjoy listening. They want anyone else that enjoys listening to just check them out. Their website is wayno.co. That's U-E-N-O. They have some awesome case studies up on their website. Their dribble portfolio is inspiring. Twitter and Instagram, hilarious. Go check them out. Follow them. See their work. Of course, if you're looking for a new gig, they're hiring. They have offices in New York and San Francisco. Wayno.co. That's U-E-N-O dot C-O. You can just click the careers link in their header. Of course, tell them we sent you. Otherwise, follow their work, get inspired, and give them a huge thank you for making this show possible. Thanks so much to Wayno. And with that, let's get into episode 168 with Jorn van Dijk and Kuhn Bach. All right. Yeah. Oh, we started? Yeah. Starting cool. now. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I'm Kuhn and uh, I'm uh, I'm an interaction designer slash engineer slash a uh, little bit of a visual designer, but Jorn's definitely better. Thanks. And uh, um, yeah, and I build products. I really like that. I've been doing it for maybe 15 years now. I uh, started with a small company, Sofa, back in the day in Amsterdam, then got acquired by Facebook. So we started uh, working there for two years. And then I really decided to, together with Jorn that I wanted to build more tools. Um, which we also did at Sofa, so it's a little bit going back to the roots. And um, But then also there was an opportunity to build a really cool design tool, and that's the thing. If you have an opportunity to pick a problem that you want to work on for a long time, this was it. So I took it, and I'm enjoying every day. Yeah, so uh, I'm Jorn van Dijk. Um, my history is pretty aligned with uh, Koons, but uh, I started out with more <laughs> of like a, started out with, uh, more of like a traditional uh, graphic design uh, background. Um, I went to do a, a bachelor in uh, interactive design um, and then connected to uh, to Kuhn through Sofa, Facebook, 
uh, and then uh, finally the 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 move back to Amsterdam and starting Framer. Wait, you first met at Sofa? Yeah. yeah. You didn't know each other before? No, I used to I used to work for Kuhn uh, at Sofa. Oh. So and then we sort of shifted into partners. <laughs> <laughs> How did that happen? Uh, I I was looking for uh, uh, an internship actually to to uh, get uh, you know get started as a professional and uh, Sofa was the only shop that just started that seems seems sort of interesting in Amsterdam doing things in the the Mac indie scene I guess uh-huh. um, that I was attracted to so in the Netherlands it traditionally or historically it's much more of like a What's it called? Like a agency uh, atmosphere, like the industry is more yeah. like agency based. So you're you're either joining like uh, an agency, you're going to do marketing and um, that kind of stuff. And it wasn't really anything interesting happening around computers or like uh, actual software development, um, except for Sofa. So that's how we. And it's probably I think uh, Jasper also was speaking about this on the podcast. Like the the early days of Sofa was basically. In my mind, was the only few people in Amsterdam that were caring about this stuff. They just found each other, and that was how it started. Because there were, like, if you were in the two Mac software design and like really good interaction design, and there's such a such a niche already, like worldwide, that there were maybe like a handful of people in Amsterdam that were trying to get into it, and we all kind of got together. So, how many years ago was that? I mean, this is this is no iPhone. Yeah, this is a while ago. I think 2004, (laughs) 2005, something like that. So you were there for a while, then Facebook, and now you're back in Amsterdam. Amsterdam, Yeah. And has the scene changed? Is it bigger? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think um, over the the time span of SOFA, so SOFA was, I think, 2006 until 2011 as like an actual company. Um, and during that amount of time, you saw that there's definitely more interest and more like other companies building software products, launching the iPhone, so m- more people jumping on that. Um, and then I think when we left, the sort of like level was still, you know, tri- in its uh, how, how infancy. It? Yeah, infancy, right? Um, and then sort of I think in the two two and a half years that we were gone and came back, you saw the level in Amsterdam of startups definitely uh, uh, getting better. So yeah, and there's some there's some weird sort of like uh, specifics about how this stuff is getting ran in Amsterdam because like all the European cities are trying to be the next Silicon Valley and none of them will probably succeed because like uh, I think it's getting more and more clear that like if any of those cities wants to do well they have to sort of invent their own way of doing it and I think the specifics in Amsterdam are are odd because there's very very good product design in the Netherlands and I think sometimes you can tell even here in in Silicon Valley that you run into way more Dutch product designers than you actually should yep. like by st- statistically <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah it's crazy and not, not everybody might be enjoying that but that's like no. there is I, I pick up the phone and I'm like he sounds exactly like Sebastian DeWitt <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so that's happening so we have we have a lot of really good talent there and I think that's sort of like heritage design I, I'm not like a history buff but there's been something going on where we've been as like Dutchies we've been very interested in design but also in a way that it makes a lot of sense for digital products but then we had a sort of cultural problem uh, where not a lot of people went into computers when they were younger and in the US you had the same thing right like it wasn't always the coolest thing I think maybe Mm -hmm. that was a little bit worse in the Netherlands so a lot of people that had that talent maybe didn't end up being interested in computers and that's slowly correcting itself now because yeah, computers are cool, and uh, and more and more people want to work with it. So that's good. I think the the other part of like starting like startups in general is that in Europe there's just like all the capital stuff is terrible. There's like not enough 
good angels because nobody got rich with tech. Everybody got rich with, well, flower bulbs is like a, a, a joke, but actually <laughs> quite t- a few. The tulips. Um, right? But yeah. also like media tulips. or like fashion or like dance music is really big in the Netherlands. But like, I, if, I wouldn't call it terrible though. It's more like it's behind, right? Yeah, that's sweet, but it's it's pretty <laughs> terrible. It's so hard. Like if, if you start Optimist. a no, but if you start a company in the Netherlands and you're raising money, and the only offer that you can get on the table is like some dude that says, "Hey, I'll give you forty thousand euros for half of your company," and you're 21, you're gonna take it, and your company is broken right away. Oh, but man. you don't know, and that that sucks. Um, same so thing. That's, for, that's a terrible example, correct? But yeah, but it happens. Like, overall, it is slightly better than it was like five years ago when it was non-existent. So there's yeah, but like this, some stuff. Happening. Yeah, this part is like still broken. But I would say like all the product part and the kind of products that people are making and the technology and sort of the ecosystem and a lot of people that did a tour of Silicon Valley and now came back with a bunch of knowledge and insights. Um, that's going tremendously well. So that's sort of the combination. The business part, capital, um, exit markets, all pretty bad. Product design very good and generally like general quality of digital products very good uh given that like the state of capital and and starting a startup in amsterdam why did you go back to amsterdam best city in the world uh, have you been no have you mm-hmm. <laughs> i want to <laughs> talking about i mean <laughs> no what's your favorite city in, in the u.s san francisco yeah all right <laughs> like, you lose <laughs> in, the, like, no, in the u.s or in the world in the world oh man oh in the world not san francisco all right i mean like it's <laughs> what we are we are from amsterdam so it's also like going home is just like mm-hmm. yeah. um you know families there and there's sure. like people that i've known for a very long time but um i think like for me amsterdam's like has a higher standard uh, quality of living so the mm-hmm. city is more condensed um the 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 sort of like work relationship you have the work life balance that you have seems to be in my opinion, seems to be more um, healthy. Uh, food seems to be generally uh, of a higher quality. So mm-hmm. I like it as a city. I like it better than SF, even though I I like this city a lot. But yeah, I think Amsterdam's just uh, just better. Yeah, for me, a little bit more complex, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I always feel weird here a little bit because I know this is the the place in the world that I'm supposed to love the most, and I kind of do. Like for why, the vibe. Why, why do you say you're supposed to love it the most? Well, because you grow up in Europe, and there's like nobody gets what you're doing like throughout yeah. your entire youth. And in the U.S., like if you're in Iowa or something, you you kind of probably felt the same. But you're just running around, just thinking about computers every day, and then. You know, the people around you are like, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll talk to someone else. Or like yep. the, the whole sort of like the cultural thing around computers wasn't great. So I felt like having an opportunity to move to a place where everybody gets that is the best thing that I can ever do. But then like in the middle of it, I felt like uh, there's also a bunch of downsides. Like it's hard to escape, which makes me, I think, lose out on some really good ideas. Because if I talk about the same stuff all the time, it's hard to come up with creative or new thoughts for myself. So I definitely... Notice that. So just like escape this whole thing. Echo I also, chamber? Yeah, the echo chamber or the bubble thing a little bit. Um, I think uh, I think also the relationship with money in this city is kind of weird. So I, I, I started not liking having to sp- always spend money to have fun, which is a little bit different, it feels, in Europe. Um, I think also just looking it's like- The cost of living is, is a lot lower. Yeah, but like the way that uh, the way that you organize your life here, and then compared to the rest of the world, is just a little weird. And but you, 
it's it, it, you notice it like you start noticing it less if you're inside this like it goes real fast because it's such a comfortable way of living yeah. uh, but it like if you're if you're thinking about like solutions for most of the world it doesn't help what, right? what do you mean organizing your life like you said we organize our lives differently here how do you mean well the the comfort that you have and the way that you can sort of like basically outsource everything to anyone mm. with money and that's so normal at like age 21 already or you know so this I don't do laundry I don't go grocery shopping I don't do this so exactly yeah. you see and maybe maybe that's just the future but it's also like if for you... clarification I do do those things <laughs> <laughs> I totally believe you man no, no, I, that was uh, you idiot uh, Jesus people will do it for you you know that statement right statement of principle yeah uh, and there's nothing really wrong with it if you can some people might be better than me like uh, keeping the right perspective but I've I felt that had an influence on me and I felt a little bit more distance. And then generally, like you're an obvious like Amsterdam, the best of the whole world. I just, I would just say I like Europe a little bit better than the US. Me too. Yeah, I, I enjoy, I don't know, I enjoy this sort of the vibe and the romance and the history, yeah. I guess. I mean, the it's romance. Not, I think it's, yeah, it's... Europe is romantic. <laughs> all of it? <laughs> uh, not all of it. <laughs> I mean, not the rain. <laughs> <laughs> As it's raining outside in San Francisco. I mean, I think we do. Every time we come back, we, because we lived here two years, it's just like we're, we're comparing all of the time, right? So once you live here, you start to get used to the way of, of living here um, better. Um, now we're back there. Um, you do the same. Comparing it, can you talk a little bit about like design culture? Uh, mostly yeah. interested in like... What's design culture? Well, the echo chamber here that you kind of mentioned is like, when you come back, what are you noticing uh, designers are thinking about and doing in Silicon Valley compared to when you get back to the Netherlands? And Yeah, you've been here for six hours. Give us your opinion. Yeah, no, but <laughs> they I do this trip I, a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, I have, I have a decent answer, I think, for this. And it's a little um, broader than just design or design culture. But it's just that, you know, in the in, in uh, Silicon Valley, everyone is in a way connected to tech. And that's super interesting if you're here because you meet random people who do things that you can relate to, right? Like they're either designing something that you've heard of or they're building a company that, company that you have read about or they're, you know, the, the general conversation in this city is evolving around tech. And that's um, either amazing because you jump in it and it's like, wow, everyone here understands what, what I'm about. Or after very, you know, uh, after being in it for a certain amount of time, it becomes um, frustrating because you don't meet people um, that can sort of like creatively surprise you with different topics or different um, different sort of like mindsets. And I think that's what maybe Amsterdam or Europe or whatever uh, has to offer more is that in Amsterdam, there's like, there's a bunch of folks in design, but there's also, you know, more people in fashion or in like other creative industries that you can't really relate to or, or uh, but do inspire you so mm. house music electronic music is a big uh -huh. is a big big thing too uh -huh. yeah uh okay so those are the upsides what's been some of the challenges of being back in amsterdam building a startup uh experience. building a design team yeah mostly experience so i think uh one of the lessons also that i took home is that if you're um if you're growing up and looking at Silicon Valley, you have this sort of this mythical, uh, how do you call it, like my mythical man, mythical person thing that everybody here is like so much smarter and doing so much better. And mm. if you're here for a year, then that wears off. Like smart people are like smart everywhere. So that's fine. But 
you do run into people here that built like the first version of Gmail or they built like the design that you looked up to when you were, when you were a kid or so there's so much like you have people here that have been here for, that have been making stuff for 15 years including some of the stuff that you loved and used um, you don't have that too much in Amsterdam I mean um, not in tech or in design. Um, so and also not in not at the scale at which you know when we went, wanted to or when we moved back we wanted to build you know a really like a next level uh, design tool company of at, at scale right not like a, a a nice five people company doing well but just we want to build a tool that basically all of the designers would use every day and that sort of mindset is definitely a Silicon Valley or a San Francisco thing that is hard to find in Europe because if you say that, um, even if you say something, you know, I believe our company is going public 10 years from now, right? I, that's how big I want it to become. That's a that's a weird conversation to have in, 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 in is Europe. Is that true? That is true. That's very true. That's very true. So people are like, but we're only with like 10. Like how could it possibly, that is a, that's a very limiting mindset, I think. Well, I have a cool question for you. Do you ever, do you ever interview Europeans? Europeans? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like people currently living in Europe or yeah, just like, people from Europe? Yeah, people from Europe that are like maybe that you guys are cont- contemplating hiring at Facebook. Um, because we had a few of those. Oh, like interview. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah. Not yeah, like podcast. Oh, no. Oh, sorry, oh, yeah. oh, I was like, well, this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, I mean. Well, that, that is a fun process because like, uh, there you can tell, like in those sort of conversations, it becomes very clear how. I mean, we all watched the A-team when we were younger, so the cultures are very close. Um, but there's like... The A-team is what makes us Americans, so yeah. Yeah, it's what makes us think that we're also Americans, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in, in those kind of conversations, you can definitely tell like how big the cultural differences can become because um, the sort of the... Well, in, in Silicon Valley, they always tell us, for example, when we go pitching, they're always like, you shouldn't be so humble, but I'm not humble. Like I'm, <laughs> I have a like, big ego. But back in, uh, <laughs> but back back in Europe, it's more. You're just shaking I'm, his head. I'm, I'm waiting for the point because I'm I'm still thinking of the A team and how that you know yeah, unites yeah, I go, us. I'm going a little bit. I bounce around, but the Off point topic. the point is more that like um um you've there's there's quite a a big uh, difference in the terms that you look at things in the U.S. and in Europe. So the IPO example is a great example of like, but how will that ever happen? If you're interviewing somebody at Facebook from Europe, they'll be like, yeah, I'm pretty interested in this uh, in this opportunity. Whereas in the U.S., if you're interviewing for a company like that, you have to say, this is the only job that I ever want. You guys are the best company that I know. So there's what? there's a big perception difference. Yeah, you, you probably wouldn't say that, but. <laughs> Brin's a little more honest. <laughs> but you see, like, if you ask for a sandwich shop in the U.S., they'll tell you that there's only one sandwich shop that you have to go to because it's the best sandwich shop. And Europe doesn't oh. have that little bit. So there's an intersection there where um, that's that's very different. So it's it's very stark black or white here as opposed to a gradient? Yes. Okay. It's a very uh, designy metaphor of you. That was the goal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to keep going on this because you're hiring people in Amsterdam, right? So you're building the team there. Yeah, the core team. So you have that that cultural piece, but you're building the core team of people from Amsterdam or mm-hmm. Netherlands. Correct. But you want to IPO in 10 years and you have like the Silicon Valley. Correct. Yes. Billion dollar uh, a dream, I guess. Right? Correct. How's that going? Like, how does that work? It is so, going fantastic. Do you have to... <laughs> <laughs> 
It is going perfect, all according to plan. Uh huh. <laughs> no, I mean, there's definitely. I thought you said challenges. you're going to be honest, man. Yeah, no, no, no. no. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely challenges. Um, what? I do think. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's finding good people is is definitely a challenge in Amsterdam. Um, we do we've managed to um, to lock in some some uh, some great talent. We've we've hired a, a ex Adobe engineer with like eight to ten years of experience. So he's a sort of like. Um, more of a has some Silicon Valley background, but overall, I think that the team's pretty junior, and we're trying to, hmm. you know, mentor them into um, becoming either great product engineers or pro- product designers. Um, but it's also one of the reasons why we come back here because in Amsterdam, we're the sort of the the outward thinking like a little too big. But when we come in here and we walk into a VC, they're like <laughs> IPO in 10 years. What the fuck? That's not, <laughs> that's not fast enough. Right. Like that has to happen. That's just, an I think example. that's fast so, enough. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. But you know, like it, it, uh, uh, Silicon Valley gives you a nice perspective on like what it means to, you know, think big or have like a big idea or a crazy dream. Why yeah. don't you hire remote? Um, I think we'll, we'll start doing that, but I, I think we both believe uh, that, you know, the core team should be a sort of like a well-oiled machine that can function without us being there. Um, I think we're still like uh, maybe like six to 12 months away from that being the being the, being the, the case. What's the biggest hurdle? Uh, no, but let me answer this too a little bit more honestly, because, okay. uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is all true, all company true. But also f- with the first company, the thing that we like having... Like the cool thing of being acquired of like moving from a small company to a big one is like you have some time to reflect, right? And you go like, okay, what went wrong and what went well in the first company? What did I really enjoy about the work? And I think one of the things that we could definitely, like we had a bunch of really cool moments in in SoFa where, so for example, I always wanted to win an Apple Design Award and then we got it. And that's that was like best night of my life. But actually it wasn't. Like the best parts were when you shipped something with a team that you worked on for half a year, you could go out for a beer after and watch Twitter and see how people respond. And those are the best memories that I built in that first company. So I don't really have anything about remote work or like against remote work. I think you can do fantastic stuff, but I just really enjoy being around the people that I make stuff with because for me, that's like the big part of my life. Are, Are you cool going the direction of remote? Are you, would you rather not? Um, if I have enough people around me that I like that I can celebrate like shipping and making with, okay. I'm fine with going remote at some point. Uh, I think we're going to have to. I yeah. mean, it's, it's not a, to me, it's not really a, yeah, I think, I think, you know, once you're past a certain threshold, um, remote is just something that comes into the mix. Yeah. And that's also like uh, if you're talking about the people that we can't get in the Netherlands, there's a ton of really good talent. So, And we also have an opportunity that if you want to work on this stuff, everybody in our company wants to work on the stuff that we're working on because it's a combination of teaching people how to program. Let me be honest. Yeah, okay, <laughs> we maybe, hope. Yeah, we hope. <laughs> I we'll, think. I believe, I believe that. We'll see after this episode. <laughs> we'll cross-examine your employees after this. <laughs> but uh, there's an interesting opportunity to teach people like how to program in an intersection of des- design and technology technology and sort of the tools that are moving, but also technically just building an editor, building AST and languages uh-huh. stuff, working with computer graphics. Um, if you like these things, there's only a few places in the Netherlands where you can work. So that's sort of an advantage in that regard. In Europe. Yeah, in Europe. And so that helps us, of course. Um, also, we have like kind of like an uh, experienced team. So you can also, also only pick from a few of those. So that's good. But the people that worked on Photoshop before or worked on, I don't know, some of like very famous, maybe on Flash or like some of the super famous graphics tools with relevant experience, that is a little bit harder to to get because they're all here. 
yeah. except for a few. We've got one at Figma. It's yeah. great. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's that's pretty awesome, right? I mean, yeah. I, it's amazing working with him. Like, yeah. he knows so much. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, we have one or two, but like, we, we're not going to find a hundred in the Netherlands. Yeah. So I want to get back to this question about the hurdle of getting that core team to be a well-oiled machine, but I don't think we've even said the name of the product you guys are working on right now. Ah. Ooh. It's called Framer. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> www.framerjs.com. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. That's actually pretty amazing. We got really far into this and I don't, you guys just didn't say it. It's fine. So here we go. You we guys framed it up nicely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, actually, to be it's about the about the core team uh, yeah. and the hurdle, right? <laughs> okay. So they, they are we've the got the framers. name of the product on the we, table. Yeah. Now. yeah, we, yeah. We, we have actually, another 20 uh, minutes. We, we just had our first sort of like, they, they had their first um, release that Kuhn and I were not involved in. So the out of goat uh, right. yeah, was a big, uh, big win for us, I think, uh, for them. Uh, the out of code animation release that we just did uh-huh. uh, last Thursday, uh, we basically had nothing to do with and was just all like, wait, all, wait, wait, all, wait. What's up? You had nothing to do with it. They were well, on vacation. I mean, I, we had some. They so, weren't even guys, there. What are you even doing? <laughs> <laughs> no, but this is this has been a thing for us. Like getting the team from junior to sort of like mid level or like even senior. It means that first you get them into like well rounded product designers or well rounded product engineers, where they can think not just about one aspect of the product, but come up with the feature, plan the feature, and then ultimately ship it and market it. Uh, uh, do the marketing around it and like just get it out the door so actually people can use it. And I think we are now at the level with the company after two years where we can literally be hands off um, for not all the releases, but a so few. So you guys are retiring. Cool. <laughs> well, <laughs> say that. It's, it's interesting because so you guys for Kunami, this feels like a do. victory, but it seems like looking at your faces, you think this is defeat, right? <laughs> no, 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 not no, at all. No. Not defeat. Uh, it's just easy to give you guys shit about it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> the way you guys said it. Oh, it's so sort good. of the office scene. It's like, so what do you do? Right. Well, well you know, as the founders of the company, <laughs> we shovel the rest of the, <laughs> of the problems out of the way. But um, no, I think, uh, you know, as a company, we put a big emphasis on learning how to ship mm-hmm. um, and trying to sort of uh, pick a problem you think is best for the, for the product to, to solve and then sort of go from there and take all the steps needed um, with while, while along bringing people on your product, like get a product designer and engineer on board, uh, think through, you know, like all of the the use cases that your thing is going to solve uh, and then do also do like the entire rollout, including like all of the marketing mm-hmm. around it. I think I, I'm pretty proud of it, you know, that we're at a stage where it's amazing, you know, a yeah. core group of people can do all of that and have learned to ship all of that stuff uh, without, you know, too much. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're helping out, but we're not like, sure. we're not driving it ourselves, which I think is great. So and, you, it sounds like you're focused on the team growth more than anything, like bringing up that experience level. And you mentioned junior, mid-level, senior. How do you look at those definitions? This is something that comes up a lot. People are like, well, I'm new to design, but I feel like I could do all of that stuff, like coming up with the the idea and then working it through. How how do you look at measuring that? Um, It's hard to measure it like like with numbers, right? Because Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's my perception and then preferably or my, mine and your perception at the team and I preferably like some process around it where we can make it insightful for them whether they're going forward or not. And I think if we're talking about this from the context of our of our company, but also maybe the way that we hire people is one of the things that we're trying to do is we get very junior product designers on board and we get them really good. Um, Why? Why do you do that? Because... Um, I the, mean, that's awesome. But. 
Yeah, well, because we can is the simple answer. And I think in Silicon Valley, well, no, like going back to SoFa, the only reason that like Facebook ever acquired our company was because we built a group of some of the best product designers. Um, and that was a big coincidence. Well, maybe not, but like we didn't know that we were doing it at the time, but it worked out pretty well. Like we, I think we're pretty good at it. Um, but it takes time and there's no time in Silicon Valley. So one of the things that we saw at Facebook, but also different companies here is if you're a design mentor here, it means that you're having coffee with somebody twice a week and then they thank you on Twitter after like, their three years in their career. But that's not like, like <laughs> that's not real design mentorship. Like I'm more talking about like an apprenticeship, right? Like if somebody really teaches you design, like they look over your shoulder every day and they're not just a good manager. Now they can show you how it's done. And that's another thing in Silicon Valley, a larger company, often your managers aren't the best, you know, actually actual product designers, which is not a bad thing because they can still be a good manager. Mm -hmm. But if I really, really want to learn design from somebody above me, then they need to show me how it's done. So we pick up like uh, young kids that have a bunch of raw talent and we just take a Old year. street rats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, just from Dribble. And then, uh, <laughs> dribble rats. <laughs> and then we try to really put a year uh, a, a year worth of effort into them. So we, we were telling them, okay, so you're going to start as a visual designer. You have a bunch of raw talent. You're going to work really hard. And we're going to turn you into like a well-rounded product designer within one year, which means they go from a bunch of small visual features to like a decent part of the website. And then thinking throughout the whole sort of the product part of the website, what are we going to try to accomplish? Small product features, larger product features, all the way to like planning a feature and shipping it. And that's that's how we sort of measure yeah. progress. Yeah, I think that's that's on the design side, that's the sort of junior, mid-level, sort of more senior position. Senior position to me is like, without any sort of additional input, you can uh, sort of like uh, identify a problem and then solve it and ship it. And like, if you can do that, in my mind, you can work at a lot of places in the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then shipping you, something is shipping is, I mean, it's yeah. probably the the most difficult skill of all, right? And mm -hmm. then that to me is just like getting something into people's hands and and evaluate afterwards if they actually use it. Um, and then junior is just like having talent, but then having no clue of what to do with it yet, and mm -hmm. and needing like the experience of you know building things and learning when is something right, when is something wrong. Um, from from very basic visual work up to towards like you know website work and then actual product work yeah I, and i think it sort of in the middle is like sort of mid levels everything in between and getting up to speed yeah because also, jun also juniors they uh like getting up to speed with design and sort of uh um, getting the amount of iterations lower until you're at the point where you can reach a consensus and actually actually push it, push it out of the door that's like 10x or something. If you start, you do it 10 times as slow as like when you're really good at it. So I think that takes quite a bit of time before you reach, you make the right choices for the next iteration. Plus you start, you know when to start building consensus so you can make a decision when something is done. And those things are really hard and they could take a few years. So mm -hmm. as you're building your company, why didn't you say we want to just start with only senior designers so we can get that 10x speed I mean, I think that's the, like the honest answer there is just it leads back to, you know, the amount of talent available. So in Amsterdam, if, if you're building a company in Amsterdam, there's only a couple of senior designers running around, but not like even here in SF, there's a, a shortage, you know, of, of good uh, senior product designers. Um, so that's why all the big companies are fighting <laughs> to get them in. 
um, the the same is true for Amsterdam. Like the pool of of, of senior people is just a little. Uh, smaller so but also we know that like some of the best people that we work with were the people that we had an opportunity to sort of like uh push ourselves a little bit you know like make make them you molded them yeah molded them <laughs> and, and we them. really like to do it too so that's fun but on the on the engineering side it's a little different so we have a pretty senior team on the engineering side hmm. all guys that came from really good uh, uh uh computer science universities in amsterdam or in actually in utrecht is the biggest one um and they're like one guy built Beamer, which is a Mac app, which got I know pretty, Beamer. Yeah, got yeah. pretty famous. He's, he's really good. And then we have uh, Edwin, who came from Adobe for 10 years. So he's like super experienced. And then new. so like we have a pretty, um, a pretty senior team on that side. So we're mostly dabbling around with like young, bring on young product designers and just like training them. Um, but uh, yeah, we might change it up in the future too. We'll so see. You said you bring people on as visual designers early on. Is there a, like one, how do you look at someone as a visual designer? Like what does that set of skills entail? And two, why do you start there? Um, I don't think we started there. So to me, um, having visual talent is mm-hmm. is very important because we I want to build a beautiful product. So I really uh, think that's just a core thing to be able okay. to contribute to, you know, being able to pick a, a color or like make sure that it looks great. Um, but I, I think we're actually looking for a much broader set of talents, which I, that's, and that's also why it's challenging um, because we're at Framer, you know, it's code, Framer, it's the second time we're saying it. Uh, it's a code based um, uh, pr- prototyping <laughs> tool. I'll, uh, that's the, the short sell. Um, so the people, you know, the, the product designers that we hire, they need to be able to, you know, HTML, CSS, CoffeeScript, JavaScript, um, maybe even more. Uh, of a of a, a more well-rounded technical background and you know product design skills, visual skills. So that's sort of like the I think the package of things that we're looking for in in in, in junior people. That's a huge package. I know. That's yeah, and that's why a lot, right? Well, yeah, and I think that um, junior like this is an internship. It requires five years of experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I kind think of. like uh, with with uh, more junior people, they don't also they don't look as I think like the the older you are in the design industry, you look at the at the division of work more black and white. So you're like visually very um, uh, skillful, or you're very good at like interaction design, or like you're a UX designer or a product design, and, and don't think of visual stuff as much. Um, but then like you know the programming part of it is almost never like it's it's totally fine to not do any of that at all. Um, and I think what we've seen with a bunch of the more junior people at our team is that they don't look at that division at all. And they just look at like the tools that they can connect uh, to build stuff that they like. And it can be Sketch or Figma uh, to do so, like visual design. And then they jump into like front end production. Um, they've dabbled around with, you know, like a bunch of the uh, front end uh, uh, things. So it seems more, it seems more reasonable to, to, to ask that, that of them um, um, than the other way around. It, does that make any sense? Yeah. Well, thank God. Should, designers <laughs> well thanks no don't Co- don't don't do that i mean we we are uh pretty yes you know we're building a code-based design school so yeah but it's... we can skip this whole thing because we're <laughs> no but like literally everybody's talking about we're just trying to prove it i don't think we'll anyone's see how it talking works. about it anymore like uh every other week there's one uh, but like it's it's a, i would be remiss if i didn't ask guys sorry for the bad it's a so oh, it's no, a but stupid it's question i think supa gave me this answer and it's my favorite one is only the good ones only the good designers should code. Hmm. Like, right. The, the bad ones can do whatever they want. 
Nah, I think like <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, you know you'll see that over the next five to ten years, all of the designers are learning how to code, and it's just it's uh, just another tool in your set. Like, why not use it? Yeah, but the sort of like the the way that we're as a you know as an industry sort of like uh, th- uh, thinking about the question sort of backwards because I think one example that we often have is that if you learn to code, you don't become you know ten percent better at your job, but over time you'll become ten x better. So you'll become so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably uh, guns for any profession, to be honest. Exactly. So I think like, you know, you'll see that at some point in the past, there were, uh, uh, you know, uh, people using print presses and then, you know, a digital press came along and they're like, you know, the response maybe was something along the lines of like, well, that's why would you use that, right? Because the thing that I have still, you know, does all of the things. And and we've had- But does it use lead type? What's up? (laughs) But does it use lead type? (laughs) <laughs> Whatever. Um, but, and I think like there's so many examples of, you know, it's just like the evolution of the profession um, that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's going to be so useful for you to be able to express interactivity or, or collaborate with engineers through, you know, the language that they've been using for the past 50 years to, you know, engineer everything you see around you that I don't, I'll think, I think of the question as something that will just dissolve over time because people will, will pick it up. And for us, the question is a little bit like, it's a very important answer for us, but for a little bit different question, because I think the whole bet of our company is that it will eventually happen. The question is just how fast. And we're trying to prove, like, I think with Framer, we've been building a secret co-teaching tool for designers. Um, and it's been working quite well, although on a small scale, but it's been working better than I've ever seen in my career. So our whole bet is that like this wave of people that are just going to use code as a tool to express interactivity or VR or Internet of Things design or AI in the future, all the stuff that we're about to have to design, um, they're going to use code as a tool to express that because it's so powerful and the tools around it got really good and simple and easy enough to pick up. Um, and if that happens fast enough, then I think we're standing a really good chance for that IPO in 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> is it still 10 this years is, from now? I or? mean, this is it's not even the goal, but it's just, you know, an, an example of something. The only where, reason we're doing this. Yeah, no, but that's that's a joke. But like, uh, I think... Um, I think like there's a wave going on where we feel like that design is going to change real fast now because we might have not changed enough in the last 10 years. And I think code is like, we are bad as that code is a big part of that answer. And we're trying to figure out what uh, what sort of the trade-off is there to make the ultimate tool. Can you, can you share a little more about your perspective on like how high fidelity people need to go into learning to code? So for example, uh, Framer uses CoffeeScript for the most part. Yeah, um, but it's its own library, right? Like Framer JS. Yeah, it's a JavaScript library. And, yeah, but so the, the most common complaint I hear about Framer is that I'm writing all this code, but none of it I can actually use. Yes, which you could say of any prototyping tool. But like, how do you address that or think of that? Uh, how far do you go into just production code? Yeah, the, we get this question uh, a lot. And uh, <laughs> sorry, I would imagine. No, no, but it's Fine. it's cool because like it, there's a built-in assumption. So. So we as designers, we we probably, well, say if you don't agree with me, but there's, uh, especially among VCs or like people that look at it from the outside. You there's say VCs? VCs, venture capitalists. God, it really sounded like you said feces, like poop. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is going downhill fast. All right. All right. This, I was like, this wait, is along what? the lines of something. I, we've, we've short, short uh, um, intermezzo, but... Um, the, um, we announced the AutoCode feature uh, last March, and we did a promotion promotional video for it. And 
when I, I I did the voice for for the or, or the voiceover. Oh, here, here we go. And here your we go. Biggest, your biggest frustration. It is annoying, man. But <laughs> when I say auto code, people hear goat, like a goat, right? So I, the the okay. YouTube comments auto are goat. like auto goat instead of auto code. So the YouTube comments is are like, why does he say goat all the time? It's like I mean, like I'm Dutch, you know. I'm trying. This is I I'm trying to say auto code <laughs> code. Um, Goat. but you hear something different. It's fine. Give uh-huh. me a break. So good. Same good goes that for him. you told the world about this. You're fine. <laughs> the world needed to know. If you are annoyed by my introduction of auto code, um, that's only fine. You know, just just leave it be. Just do something else. Say say <laughs> say code VCs. Code VCs. <laughs> All right. So where are we? Here? I was saying. Oh, thanks, yeah, just, guys. How's your Dutch? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Um. Wait, what what was it answering? Oh yeah. So okay, so there's uh <laughs> there's sort of this holy grail idea that a designer should be able to make apps at some point because if it all sort of revolves around like if they're teaching code then at or learning code then at some point they should be able to build their own stuff so maybe like designer to app store at once that could be a thing. But um I think most designers agree that that'll probably not really happen because like there's always a part of engineering that might not be a part of design like fast algorithms or data storage or database I, it could be all these things. Engineering is a little bit different than design. Um there's some overlap but it's never going to be a one-on-one I think. So if you take that then there's definitely the part where if you write some code in um in Framer you might be able to get that closer to production and there's that opportunity for us where some other tools might not have that. But the things that are holding us back from it is, one is like more more philosophic thing where if you're working on an ID, you don't really wanna uh, be constrained by all the things you're constrained by if you're engineering something. So cross browser stuff, uh, making your code look nice for others to work with. Like if I'm working on just expressing something very complex, I just wanna make a mess because that's also how my design files look normally right like it's it's a messy process to get there and like i want to keep that being messy and not having to think about all these things to that sort of constrain me to get to the best possible id so that's one and the other thing is more of a startup thing where if you if you try to build a tool that can go from prototyping to production all at once then you have to build a multi-platform toolkit well, multi-platform never gives you the best ui always sort of like decent ui for cheap historically at least so then I have to go to uh, a VC and get <laughs> at least <laughs> and get like uh-huh. 20 million because like I need all these engineers to build like an animation, multi-platform animation toolkit, all these widgets, a runtime. And then once I got it, I have to go to Facebook and ask them, hey, you want to use my startup animation runtime and widgets and toolkits because then you can ship your prototyping code and they're never going to say yes. So from a business perspective, there's some interesting opportunities but the main one where you build all this stuff around your prototyping code so you can reuse it i don't think it's like a good business decision at this point is are the autocode features you guys have been building for the last year are those contrary to this vision of teaching designers how to like solve problems with code because now it's sliders and drag and drop oh no i think quite the opposite so i think like autocode um <laughs> Uh-huh. Got too aware of saying it. It's it's annoying, but you know Crashes the way that on, the way that it works now is that you know you uh, we we offer you an interface to get started. So you insert a, a a starting point. You visually start to manipulate it. You know on the on the canvas and it's writing code for you. So 
by by having that, it, it takes away you know a bunch of the questions around what's the syntax like, uh, what things can I do with Framer, um, how do I learn about how to write down border radius or uh, any of those those things. So um, the best thing is it, it does is it's it's taking away you know the the step of I now have to type something into Framer on the left um, and I can just start playing with it. The blank of, canvas problem. It, it's yeah. an on ramp. Yeah, like that's it, exactly. But yeah. it's also some people learned HTML through Dreamweaver, and I don't want to make the, uh, the too much of a direct connection because the code that we generate is actually pretty. Uh, but <laughs> I think that was a very powerful tool to play around on one end with like a WYSIWYG stuff, and then on the other hand, see the generated sort of code for it. And that was the way that I learned most of the HTML. Where you know, of course, I started with okay, so I can move these things around. But then I look at the actual stuff that gets written. I'm like, this isn't too hard. I can I can do this myself, and I can put it down way neater. Um, so it's it's definitely a way for people, even advanced users, to. There's a very powerful combination between direct manipulation and programmatic manipulation, and I think we're one of the tools that are trying to figure out how we can use that together to build a better tool uh, or to give designers a better way to build things. Um, and you can definitely tell if you combine direct manipulation in Framer with a loop, it's crazy cool what you can do with it. Um, but on the other hand, it's really good for beginners where they can insert some stuff and just look at what's being generated and go like, hey, this looks like enough like CSS so that I get it. Like, I can just do that. And then they never stop learning because after that, they pick up a variable. After that, they pick up a function. After that, they pick up classes. Gets um, addictive. It gets, gets that, real addictive. Yeah. Nice endorphin rush. Yeah, and I mean, you can tell in the group that like uh, you see a bunch of easy, like somebody's starting out and then you see a bunch of easy questions being posted in like week one to two and they go like, ah, oh, shit, I made this typo, but I, I don't really know what it is. So how, like it's a dot instead of a semicolon, why even? And then after three <laughs> weeks, even? you see him like in their time zone in the middle of the night, you see him posting something along the lines, shit, I can't believe it's Friday night. I'm still working on this thing. <laughs> I'm having way too much fun. And then, you know, that sort of like, they got through the point where the intimidating part is off it, but they also get the basic stuff done and they see what they can make. And that's really cool. So one of the things, as someone working in a design tool company, one of the things that I think is really interesting is we're kind of building tools to make things easier for people. So eventually mm -hmm. you want them to spend as little time as possible in the tool. Or make way more so they, they're just having fun, right? Like get more output. I mean, uh, I, My question being like, how do you make it so it's not someone staying up all night working on a prototype? Is that a goal or do you just want them to be able to make more stuff? Well, I want, yeah, no, they can stay up all night and work in the tool, but not, <laughs> not on a deadline just because they're having fun. It's fine, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I mean, that's how I learned to design. Like I was just having fun in Photoshop and clicking around and not stopping. So that that's the good part. I'm not going to change that mm. because it also means like how... How many things are there in your life where you can just like spend eight hours nonstop and maybe games is pretty close, but for designers, that's like mm -hmm. one of the best things, right? Like get yeah, in a flow and build something really cool. Yeah, but it's also like the um, framer is code-based and therefore it's sort of like limitless. So there's no real, there's no real, you know, like it, it's not something that you can end at some point, you know, like um, if you're playing around with uh, uh, WYSIWYG uh, uh, products, at some point you'll have learned all of the features and all of the mm -hmm. buttons and things you can click on to get a certain effect. And you're just like playing around with, you know, getting different variations of output. Uh, but with Framer, that's not really the case. So you can keep learning and keep hacking and keep doing things in it to generate wildly different results, which I think is, that's that's the addictive part to people where they they, they go like, 
oh, maybe I can wait, I can, you know, plug in the Spotify API and generate a completely new, you know, interactive design on top of, you know, the real I data. I listen to all my Spotify through Framer, so. <laughs> you can do <laughs> that. <laughs> Exclusively. Uh, wh- why did you guys make Framer? When did you start thinking about these problems, actually? Um, I think at Sofa, we started thinking about tools. Oh, wow. Uh, a lot. So the Sofa was weird where it started just to solve a problem that we had selling iPods in some uh, Apple store. So we started with a, a point of sale system, uh, which was uh, kind of weird, but you have to start somewhere. And then very quickly, we ran into the problem that like all our design files and all the stuff that we were doing in the company, we wanted to have like a versioning system for that. And at the time, subversion was really big, but really hard to use. It's weird saying that because it gets so much harder, but, um, but Subversion was really good also for design. So we found this guy in Portugal and we together we built versions on top of it, which was like a tool that um, it's basically like a Git client that you have today, but then for Subversion, it got really popular also among a lot of designers. And on top of that, we built Kaleidoscope, which was a tool to inspect differences. Uh, but from the get-go- I still use Kaleidoscope almost every day. Yeah, me too. It's, it's, it's a really cool tool. It was really fun to build. And- uh, but from the first day, we already built in like image comparison so that like you could also inspect two different image files. So that was the part where we spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, what's like better tools and enjoying working on that a lot. So then fast forward throughout Facebook, um, I think in Facebook, there was a very specific point in time where, well, we knew Mike Mattis, for example, for a long time and Brandon Walken, and we knew that these guys were always dabbling around with Quartz Composer and got some fantastic results with it, even while the product was shit for interaction design. And it's cool that like Brandon Walken, he could fix that shitty tool and actually make it pretty impressive for interaction design. So that's what he started doing at Facebook because he saw that like people wanted to express things that you could just not express in Photoshop. And if you could spread that through the design team, um, then you would get like very different design results. And I think there was a little group within Facebook design that started figuring that out. Um, And it became very obvious if you could give Zuck or anybody else like a decision maker your phone rather than showing them a bunch of Photoshop player comps um, because that was such an easier sell. Um, So... And they started all thinking about sort of the Quartz Composer stuff and how how you could use visual programming to express these things. But I never really got into the visual programming part. So I thought, okay, so what other things do we have to express these things? And actually, Rasmus started working on a way to do accelerated uh, drawing in the browser. So he made a little project that where you can do the translate Z and then you get like graphics accelerated uh, uh, animations. And I'm like, okay, well, I can use that for Framer and build something. Well, it wasn't called Framer, but I can use that to express some of the interactive designs that we want to do. So I built like small JavaScript library on top of that. And that kind of happened at the same time at Facebook. So we had a bunch of these projects where now we could teach the rest of the design team to become a lot better designers, which is what we did for maybe like a couple of years. We just taught Framer and Quartz Composer to all the new recruits every week. Um, and that was a lot of fun. Got me a lot of great feedback on how to improve the tool. And Did you went through it? Uh, we did one. You skipped Framer, right? No, we, we, did, <laughs> we, no, we did a Framer and an origami session. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's cool. How, how did Framer break out 
like how did it become its own company and then you guys ran well it? it wasn't really anything well at fa- at facebook it was just an ideal id to express interaction but it wasn't a tool or anything it was just a shitty javascript library okay and everybody had one of those so it wasn't <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and then so but we quit facebook and we got into and this is the part where i said that uh, maybe you well every x ex-designer at like a large company goes through it or like ex-employee goes through it that's like has been has been an environment where you're only thinking about millions of users at the same time and only have like great data to work with and make decisions based on and then you get kind of uh, cocky is not the wrong word but like your your world perception bends in one way and you're about to quit and you're like oh it's going to be so easy to build a product I have all these great lessons I know it all I know how to start a billion dollar business <laughs> yes <laughs> exactly like, I'm just going to do something with photos or messages and I have a million <laughs> users in month three and then I have ten millions in a year and uh, so, everything so will be naive. fine and we like I worked on messages in the first year and Jorn worked on photos so we were like okay well we were good at, we're pretty good at that stuff so let's do something with it uh, and that's what we tried for half a year and then for some of these products that we uh, wanted to build we needed prototyping so we took the framer thing off and it wasn't even called like that but like I took the JavaScript library and we played around with it a little bit and we were at some point we were looking at each other it's like so much more fun to work on this and turn it into an actual product than another photos or messaging app um, and that's the other th- thing that comes in. I think like um, if you if you quit at like a, a job like Facebook, and you have some time to sort of pick the next problem for like with a startup. It's best if you if you have a long if you have a long horizon. That could be a really good secret weapon because most people think in especially here it's like you think in one two three year terms. So if you want to do a startup, you better think in, uh, I don't know, if you have a five to 10 year horizon to solve a problem, that's a big advantage over some other startups. And to get that, you pick a problem that you really like working on that has a bunch of properties that are cool. And it could be like a specific property, like um, if you're doing a banking or finance app, you have to deal, you have to make a lot of deals and deal with banks. If you're building a marketplace, you have to deal with both the sellers and the buyers and ramp them up at the same time. So there's a bunch of these very specific properties. But other than that, you can just look at the things that you really like working on. For example, with a design tool, people make stuff with the thing you make and that's very fulfilling. So for us, that was like, it crossed a bunch of those checkboxes and we really like working for the group of people um, that use our tool. We think we are pretty good at marketing to those group because we know them so well. Um, So we basically picked this problem to you know, to go after. And that was, but it still took us a year. Whereas when we just quit, we thought it would be so easy to, um, to, to start again. Were you surprised that there's a market for design tools at this level now? For sure. I'm still surprised by it. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how much you can talk about it, but like, what is the scale that we're talking about? I think like in my head, I, I don't know. Are there thousands of designers that, that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? Like how many designers out there are, are the people that yeah, that we, we can reach with these tools. There are some some lame numbers around that might not be correct, but they're saying, in, like in the U.S. markets, like five hundred thousand oh, yeah. addressable designers that uh, that you can go after with like a graphics tool, graphics interaction tool. Okay. Well, yeah, as a as a as a tool that people can use day to day, five hundred thousand people in the U.S. alone are working in the interface design, app design, web design, like, and that's in that. Um, uh, industry that that you can sell the tool to, um, but then there's you know so many more companies are now revolving around design being the key thing um, the company does, 
um, that you know there's so many stakeholders that want to have insight into the design or the, in, the design process that obviously you know as a as a company can be much bigger than yeah. the 500,000 people that uh, we're talking about. Plus that group is ramping up really quickly. So. Right. So as that gets bigger and bigger, it's more, that's why we're seeing so many design tools launch, right? And a lot of people are trying to solve very similar problems of how do you express yes. interaction ideas? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how do you make sure that like you're on the cutting edge of that? How do you make sure you're not going to get uh, yeah, the- totally <laughs> caught off guard, right? Like right, right. people know they're going to try. Yeah, um, it's interesting for us because Framer's been on the market now almost two years, I think. Um, and we're almost considered a veteran already right? As in, in the sort of like the prototype space. You're old space. school. Yeah. So, um, you know, the our competitors last year, I, we don't really look at it as like a competitive space yet because it's the, the numbers are, are still pretty yeah. small, right? Like the, the prototyping is definitely still sort of like a, considered a niche um, we think that, you know, once we get into like broader interactive design, it becomes less of a niche. But as it is today, prototype is more of a niche. So it's not really, you know, looking at the other players in the market from a year ago, we, we didn't really felt uh, competitive towards them because it's still small scale. Um, but most of them are gone. So uh, last year, uh, Pixate and Form both got acquired by Google. At the time, those were our main sort of competitors, uh, if you will. Um, and then, then they got shut down. And then I got shut down. Yeah. Um, and then w- the second they got snatched up, I think uh, within like two or three months, Flinto and Principal launched, and they are now they now seem to be like the more advanced sort of. Mm-hmm. They seem to be filling that uh, gap of uh, of Pixate a little bit. Um, so it's constantly shifting. So, but the question was also like, how do you avoid not? becoming like hey, uh, cool. yeah, that's true. unimportant. And I think for us, that's, that's a great way to put it, by the way. That's a better way of <laughs> asking oh, cool. my question. <laughs> I should start a show. Um, no, but uh, I think uh, we're going after a really hard problem, right? So if you look at all the, uh, most of the other tools, they, um, it's all about like, if you now look at the tools, so you can all put them on like a flexibility scale on one side and sort of like the barrier to entry on the other side. So I think a lot of tools are trying to make a good trade-off where they keep the barrier to entry as low as possible and like still retain enough flexibility to do most of the job. Um, and some of them strike a pretty damn good balance and are able to push through it. So I think historically, like Pixhead was my de facto sort of flexibility versus uh, barrier to entry sort of tool that I would have come up with like on a Saturday afternoon without thinking about it too much. Not, I mean, their execution was perfect, but that was like sort of the balance that was for me natural. And now I see tools like Flinto and Principle trying to break through that a little bit, which is really cool to see because I consider that like cool innovation in the design space. I think from the other hand, what we're trying to do is like, we're ultimate flexibility. We need to push the barrier to entry lower. Um, So we're tackling a really, really hard problem. And I think that's why we won't become... um, unimportant in the space because like we're either gonna if we make that then we're gonna become really big um it's just gonna be a matter of can we contribute to that space scaling up and that people consider or wanting to figure out solutions for these problems and i feel we're pretty strongly about it for a couple of different facts like that the young like younger designers don't consider engineering or code versus design in such a weird way that we do 
I think uh, that you also see that we know as designers secretly that we're still trying to really innovate on how we move images or animate in images across the screen, but we have to start designing VR and designing AI and all that shit. So like, it's only going to go faster from now on. And I think we're in a pretty damn good position to go after, after all these things. VR and AI? Oh yeah, but like all the breadth of design that we're ha- going to have to do after this. Yeah, but, but even VR today, um, last year we launched a component. So if you have like a bunch of photos, you can wrap them in like in Framer in like a VR component and you can play with it on your phone. So that's like mm-hmm. a, an example of, you know, who, who of the designers you know is actually designing VR experiences by themselves. Mostly Facebook and Google. Exactly. Like, but still, you know, like yeah. design is moving in much more uh, uh, to become a much, much broader um uh, job than just you know like animating a bunch of things over over a phone. Right. So how, that's what that, I want to know more about. Like job title. How, how, how are you sequencing out and like planning for that? Like, are, are we getting to the point where moving things across a screen is well, obviously huge and important, but becoming less important? Are we are we moving away from that? And you guys need to stay ahead of like let's build a great VR design tool. Let's build a great. Uh, AI design tool. Well, the point where we're at is like, we want to get more designers to start with VR. So, and uh, at the very least, I want them to start thinking about the concepts around VR that they're not thinking about. And within one Saturday afternoon playing with Framer and VR, you'll learn about why a horizon is really important on earth, but not so much in space. <laughs> Something that you don't really think about if you're doing just like flat UI design on a on a phone. And it's very important to consider these things. It's also... Uh, like how elevation work and how you can animate sort of your camera, but not get people, you know, not not get them sick. All these tricks that sort of revolve around VR that we have to deal with as designers if we want to get into that. And I think if that's going to be the next platform, then we better start learning about it. So I think that is one of the things that we're trying to prepare for a little bit. If we can get like a subset of our uh, designers to sort of dabble with the first concepts in VR or the first concepts in AI and how to how to play around with that, that'd be really great. Is this loosely the pitch you guys make to investors? No. Nope. What's the pitch What's to the investors? What's the pitch you make to investors? <laughs> uh, the pitch to investors is pretty simple. I think that we're in um, um, at a point where this sort of like prototyping niche markets is pretty much defined by tools that were where that have been informed by print. So we've been going through sort of an era where we had like Photoshop, Illustrator, InDesign, and that took us like 15 years to figure out. And it worked really good for print and the way to integrate and sort of the division of tasks. And then it became really weird because the photo editor got really great for UI design because it got a subset of the features of Illustrator, but you don't really use the rest. And that became sort of the de facto interface design tool. Then the others started to copy it. Dominating the industry for 10 years. Everybody clicking around in Photoshop. Mm -hmm. And then now, like, we're going to get way better versions of that finally with some with really cool collaboration built in that we never had. Some others that are just like, uh, you know, that push layout stuff forward and, and symbols and all these sort of like concepts are slowly rolling in but I think that if you look at uh, the design market where we have graphics tools and prototyping tools I'd be very surprised if that is still the case in two years so I think there's going to be a mainstream design tool that's going to emerge and I think it's going to be an interactive first tool because the work we do yeah. is interactive one tool to rule them all well not really I hope a few but yeah it, it, I don't- I don't think we ever want the industry to go back to one tool to to rule them all because it's just an unhealthy balance for the ecosystem. But um, I mean, we strongly believe that interactivity is like that's the thing forward. Um, and so, we're, but we're, we definitely want to be you know become like a more mainstream design tool that more people can use. Um, 
while maintaining sort of the the vision of it being limitless. So I don't think we ever want to step away from the you know the the fact that you can if you want you can you can hack into it and you can make it do whatever you want so that we can still push it push design in in like the the VR space or the AI space forward. Well, you, both of those seem like code is the right tool to use to design for them, right? Like VR yep. is mostly like everyone I know is using Unity, and that's what C sharp and JavaScript anyway. Like, yep. Yeah. But it, like a step away. Yeah, and then uh, beyond that, of course, like the end of the pitch or like the final part of the pitch where it's about like uh, how do you become really, really big? Um, that's the part where all the companies that do great design or deliver great experience they win. Um, so. If we can figure out like how to make design better as a whole by getting people on board to collaborate on design that are not designers, so you can solve design constraints within companies, or how you can just like make design more efficient in companies in the way that you express it and talk about it and discuss it or get sign off, um, that's a really big market. So Envision has been doing really well here where I think for every copy they sell to a designer, they must sell at least 10 copies to non-designers. So um, that's sort of the big power play after it. But um, I don't want to do just that. I also want to invent the tool because that's that's the the most fun part for me. Do you think you can fit all this into Framer or are there... Do you need a subset of tools like a VR design tool, an interface, des- uh, screen interface, two-dimensional design tool? Uh, when does that split out, or like how far do you go in putting all of this into Framer? I think in the foreseeable future we can make Framer a lot bigger to encompass these, but I wouldn't be surprised that we will end up if we would end up with a sort of division like in design, uh, Illustrator, Photoshop for interactive work in the future at some point, but. It's hard to really predict that balance that will work work well because like it's also so multimedia. I think one of those parts will probably be a video tool. One of those parts will probably be an audio design tool, and then you'll have maybe like some three D design tool, and then maybe like a tool where you put everything together. Uh, probably like still like a graphics tool, right, where you can go really deep on icons that you don't, you know, that you don't use from anywhere else, where you just like really good like Boolean operations on paths and stuff. So yeah, that will be. Like there will be some, uh, there will be some convergence, but also like a re, like a, a reconfiguration of how these things are going to work together. It's hard to predict, though. Yeah, but hopefully you guys will be able to. I hope so. I yeah, s- that, that's, that's the game. The, the hope. Yep. How are we doing on time? We're good. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> One to make sure. Uh, we like to end by asking a very simple question. Do it. But you can interpret it as you want. Uh, what keeps you up at night? Yeah, can't say jet you to, lag. Yeah, can't, can't say jet lag. <laughs> That's the easiest now. Jet lag is easy. Um, I mean, I mean, Framer as the company is is addictive, right? Like running a startup is definitely um, it's it's super challenging. Um, definitely, the thing that keeps you up is how to make sure that the people at the company do really well. Uh, how you can help uh, getting them better. Um, does yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang, on, hang on. What you're like worried about? Not being able to do that, or no, not just- at all. But it's it's um, you know at on one part at, at, on one side, r- starting a startup is sort of like it's a super challenging thing that I think we started very naively about, and then uh, you know uh, as the product sort of matured a little bit and the industry matured a little bit with it, you know now we're at a stage that we're you know we're definitely becoming a company of like we're 13 people now next year we're gonna uh hire a bunch more than we're getting towards like uh 20 is definitely like a a, a company of a um 
uh, a meaningful size, right? Um, but then, you know, getting the, um, with that, you get like, we are transitioning in more of like a role where we need to um, help people become super successful within the company. So um, I think that's the thing that mostly keeps me up at night now is um, in the beginning of the startup, you're, you know, I'm a, I'm a product designer first and a visual, have, have a strong um, uh, emphasis on like visual work. So I did all of the work, right? And now with more people, I need to be more, need to become more hands-off, uh, help them do the work um, and then for the company solve the next set of problems that the company's going to have. So um, for example, hiring for us is going to be a, a, a big challenge, something that we want to um, solve more structurally at the moment. Um, but that means like if we succeed at that, we get more people inbound that we need to train and sort of like make successful within the right. company. So that's more, yeah, that's a more well-rounded answer, I think. You satisfied? Yeah, that was pretty good. All right, thanks. It was better than you're like, <laughs> I don't know, just thinking about how to like uh, yeah. love people. Yeah, no, that was awesome. Thanks. Yeah, we have a set of the same problems, so it's it's harder to answer, I guess, now. Uh, but uh, um, I think uh, generally I sleep very well. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's because, definitely a better sleeper than I am. Okay. So. No, but also like in terms of like thinking about was problems. that shade? Like was that? <laughs> yeah, he sleeps a lot better than I do. <laughs> What He's you? always sleeping. This guy doesn't stop sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I work a lot too. Yeah. Uh, no, I think uh, the the things that that are supposed to keep me up at night are also the things that make me excited, right? So I'm not, I don't really like to. No, that's the wrong way to put it. But there are some really hard problems about startups that are tough. Like uh, Sofa was 15 people. How do we get to 100? That's that's like a pretty big one to figure out and you want to do it really well and you know how shit it is if somebody doesn't do it well because we've all worked for those. So I try, why, try I want to try and avoid becoming one of those. So that's like a big problem, like fundraising stuff, doing it for the first time. That's a big sort of like problem. Figuring out like a sales department for the company or like some, some of these strategy things that have to be solved if you want to get bigger is like one thing that should keep me up. But if I'm super honest about it, I really enjoy doing them and figuring them out. Not all of the time, but like once once you you feel you're on the right once path. Once it succeeds. Once it succeeds. <laughs> yeah. Or it feels it's like great. you're getting closer. <laughs> it's really cool to do. And I'd, I'd hate myself much more if I weren't working on those things, right? Because I also see a bunch of very talented people around me that, you know, get comfy over time. And I like to try and keep pushing it. Do you guys disagree on anything? Seems like A lot. What's what? What's a fundamental disagreement? Oh, you should work on a product with us. <laughs> <laughs> you disagree about working with Brian? Is that what you just said? <laughs> no, but probably about some of the product decisions that we have to make. Yeah, really? product gets us fired up a lot. How do you? How, how do you? How uh, do you solve it? Yeah, a bunch you, of beers. <laughs> yeah, beer's a good one. Also, like we've been working together for eight years, so it's you know I think a, a healthy understanding of. It's never the end of the world, man. It's you know you can you can have this one. I'll take the next one. Is like I think is is fundamental to to good co-founders, um, and then beer. Yeah, but that's also like a good co-founder uh, advice from uh, somebody who picked the second one. Uh, is uh, some people really optimize for like skill sets, right? So like they're not overlapping just a little bit. Um, but then they're very complementary. Um, maybe some some cultural stuff or some something. There's like a lot of things that you hear that people optimize for when picking a co-founder. But the best co-founder, I think, is somebody that you don't get into like those 
annoying sort of frustrational little debates with that you can't solve over time or that you stop solving over time. The best co-founders are the ones that you can say something stupid and then somebody tells you, you said something stupid, let's go drink a beer. And then it's it's out of the way the next day. Um, and that that's super important. And I don't think people optimize for that enough. That's a great answer. Uh, I'm just curious, what's the last time, what's the last thing you guys fundamentally disagreed on? Maybe product direction or like your vision for the company? No, I think like, do we have to raise a round now? Yeah. That, that well, goes it's back not and a forth. disagreement. Not anymore. It's a question. Um, like hi- hiring somebody, seeing talent. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like the last product conflict we had. Well, we just shipped most of the stuff. So we agreed on it. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> because it, yeah. Because it got out of the door. But I think like when we were trying to invent the first version of AutoCode, there was definitely like, that was a tough problem to solve where... You know, the code and manipulates in a, if you've used it now and you think, oh, that's a very natural thing to use. I'm, uh, I'm happy to hear that. But getting to that <laughs> getting stage to that. is like yeah. the, the moments when it's, when it's truly trying, when you're tr- truly trying to be innovative and trying to figure out a new model, I think is what can get us fired up the most because it's that, that's like the interesting stuff, right? The, the intersection of like code and like visual sort of like trying to figure out a model. Um, and then, debating about how it will work and how people would use it um yeah that's yeah and, and that's that that to me is actually like more that's the most fun yeah that's like so. good disagreement right that's <laughs> yeah, productive that's like, disagreement. i love it yeah yeah, yeah. yeah and it, but it gets weird because like also i think we've done this long enough now to also be uh be knowledgeable about that you only get it good 50 percent of the time good interaction design right I mean, we've all been in user testing and like sat there in shame <laughs> and i think like if you're if i spend another 15 years i'm going to be like i'm going to be right 55 percent of the time if i'm lucky but never 100 the moments that you disagree about that product stuff if you like the points that you make if you're too sure it's just stupid because you can you can know it for sure that's the thing that we know that we're like if you're really good you're wrong half of the time and then still you have to battle with that your total conviction that you're like that you're about to do the mm-hmm. stupidest thing ever. And I think like I've gotten better to enjoy that balance a little bit a bit and like to not take it too seriously, but still fight for the things that I feel are important. Awesome guys. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, well, thank you. you are jet lagged and uh, <laughs> thanks for having us. Just arriving. Yeah, yeah. super cool. That was great. That was episode 168. Thank you to Kuhn and Jorn for coming and hanging out with us. Uh, they literally like got off their flight last night, went to breakfast, and then came here. So, well, thank you. when you're hearing these words, it wasn't last night, but when we recorded it, it was last night. Whatever, man. We really appreciate them uh, putting up with the jet lag to hang out with us and share their stories. If you want more stuff like this, check out the Spec Network. We have podcasts for designers and developers aiming to help you level up. That's at spec.fm. Uh, shows like Immutable where it's a Q&A that Bryn also hosts. With Sam Sophus. Yep. We've got shows for Android developers, iOS developers, web developers. We've got Layout, our other design podcast with Kevin Clark and Raphael Conde. They're awesome people and you should go listen. Once again, that's at spec.fm. Uh, we hope you'll find something that you like. And of course, before we go, be sure to check out our sponsor that made this episode possible, Wayno. They're an agency doing amazing work out of Reykjavik, New York, and San Francisco with a team of people we love. Uh, you should follow them on Twitter and Instagram and Dribble. Get inspired by their work and case studies on their website at wayno.co. That's U-E-N-O dot C-O. 
And of course, if you're looking for some work, uh, they are hiring. Go to their website, click the careers link in their header and tell them we sent you. Thanks so much to Wayno for making this episode possible. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye.